Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 38, Premeditated Evil. On January 25th, 2002, it was a Friday night, and Brenda Van Dam was excited. She had plans to enjoy a night on the town with her two girlfriends. Nothing too wild. It didn't take much to get the juices flowing. As a mom with three kids, a local bar called Dad's, with her friends Denise and Barbara, that was a good time. Brenda's 39 years old, and her husband Damon is 36. They have three children, Derek, who's nine, Danielle, seven, and little Dylan, who's five. They live in San Diego, in the upper middle class neighborhood called Saber Springs. Their home is on a street called Mountain Pass. It's a two-story, and it's neat and tidy. Brenda is a stay-at-home mom, and her husband Damon is an engineer. At the neighborhood bar that night, Brenda noticed a familiar face in the crowd. It was her neighbor. He lived two doors down from her. His name was David Westerfield. But David and Brenda, they'd never been formally introduced, and they didn't really run in the same circles. At 50, he was older, twice divorced with college-age kids. He was a successful engineer. But that night at the bar, when David and Brenda made eye contact, that all changed. He walked over, introduced himself, even bought Brenda and her girlfriends a round of drinks before he headed back to his seat. Brenda and David would cross paths again the following Tuesday when she was going around the neighborhood with her daughter, Danielle, who was selling Girl Scout cookies. They knocked on the door and David invited them into his home. And in the kitchen, as he was filling out the order form, he was like, hey, why don't you introduce me to your friend, Barbara? As David and Brenda chatted, Danielle and her little brother went checking out his backyard pool. And Brenda told David, well, hey, it just so happens that we're going back to dad's bar this Friday. And that if he wanted to, he could introduce himself to Barbara. That is, if she could get childcare. Her husband Damon was planning to be away that weekend. As luck would have it, by the time Friday, February 1st rolled around, Brenda's husband wasn't going away after all. He was going to be home all weekend. And he was like, go out and have fun. And he'd stay home and watch the kids. So that night, the Van Dam family ordered Domino's pizza and they ate together at the family table. At around 8 p.m., Brenda's friends, Denise and Barbara, showed up and they decided to do a little pre-funk, going into Brenda's garage to smoke a little weed, where Damon popped in to join them. Even though the Van Dams liked to party a little, they were extremely mindful of their children. In fact, they had reversed the lock on the interior garage door which led inside the house, which meant they could prevent their kids from coming into the garage from inside the house. After they smoked the pot, they decided to open up the side door to let out the smoke. And then they went to Dad's bar, where, sure enough, Brenda would see David Westerfield, who was hanging out with his friend Gary. Of course, by then, Brenda had already shared with her friend Barbara that David was interested in meeting her. And so Barbara walked over to his table and said hello. They exchanged pleasantries, and then David followed Barbara back to her table, where he bought the women a round of drinks. Not long after that, Brenda and her friends were joined by two male friends of the Van Dams, and they went off to play pool. But 
Later that night, the group would hit the dance floor. And at some point, David, Brenda's neighbor, would get a little flirty with her on the dance floor. And they both started kind of engaging in some dirty dancing moves. Nothing serious. Brenda was just having fun. That night, Brenda and her friends would close down the place. And by 2 a.m., they were headed back to Brenda's house. It was odd, though, when Brenda came home. Once inside, she saw a blinking red light on the alarm monitor. Brenda realized it was the side door of the garage. Remember, they had opened that door to air out the marijuana smoke. Had they forgotten to shut the door all the way before they left to go to Dad's? Brenda secured the door. She could hear her group of friends laughing in the kitchen as they trolled for snacks. But she headed upstairs to her and Damon's bedroom to check in, where she found her husband awake. Apparently, Layla, the family's new puppy, had woken Damon up at around 2 a.m. because she needed to go to the bathroom. So Damon went downstairs, led her out of the sliding glass door that led into the backyard. And after she was done, he called her back in, then went up to his bedroom and stayed up. He knew that Brenda and her friends would be home soon, and he wanted to say hello. His night with the kids had been uneventful. Usually, Layla slept with seven-year-old Danielle, but that night, when he put the kids to bed at around 10, He left the doors to his children's room ajar, and he took Layla back to his bedroom down the hall and shut his door so that Layla wouldn't wander out and wake up the children. So when Brenda came up the stairs to the master bedroom to let Damon know she was home, she made sure to gently close each of their children's bedroom doors so the adults in the house wouldn't wake them up. When she got to her bedroom, she saw her husband, Damon, and her friend, Barbara, passionately kissing. Brenda stood there watching. Apparently, Damon and Brenda had been experimenting with what some consider the quote-unquote swinger lifestyle. Damon had had sex with Barbara while Brenda watched, and he'd also had sex with Denise while her then-husband and Brenda watched. Brenda had also had a sexual encounter with Denise in the past as well. But the night was winding down, and all the adults gathered downstairs to munch on leftover pizza, and about 20 minutes later, all their guests left, and Brenda and Damon went upstairs to go to bed. But the night wasn't over for Damon. He fell asleep, but around 3 or 3.30, he was suddenly roused from sleep. The alarm monitor in their bedroom was flashing, indicating that a door or window was unsecured. So Damon padded downstairs. He followed a draft of cold air, and it led him to the sliding glass door. It was open. It was the same door he'd used to let Layla run outside earlier. It was strange. He was just like... Had he forgotten to close it? He would shut the slider, then went through the house and checked the garage for an intruder. Everything seemed right as rain, so he went back to bed, but he hadn't checked on the children. By morning, the house was bustling again. It was Saturday. Brenda was up first. She had made a commitment to babysit a couple of neighborhood kids that day, who had arrived at around 9.30. Damon and the two boys were downstairs eating breakfast. Danielle hadn't come down yet. So Brenda went upstairs. She opened Danielle's closed bedroom door. Her daughter's room looked like it was fit for a princess. The walls were pink with lavender accents, with a white four-poster twin bed, complete with a white dome bed netting. As Brenda got closer and closer to her daughter's bed, she realized her daughter wasn't there. She rushed downstairs, calling out to her daughter, calling out to Damon. Danielle's not here, as they frantically searched every nook and cranny of their two-story home, calling out for their seven-year-old daughter. But Danielle 
was gone. Brenda immediately dialed 911. Yes, ma'am, I have an emergency. What's the emergency? My daughter is not in her bed this morning. She's only seven. Okay. When did you find her? Just now? Just now. I thought she was in there sleeping, and I went in there. Someone came over, I was babysitting, and she's not there. Her name, ma'am? Brenda Van Dam. began calling their neighbors and friends. Had anyone seen their little girl? And word quickly spread throughout the close-knit community that Danielle was missing. Meantime, patrol officers arrived at the Van Dam's residence. They initiated a search of the home and spoke with the parents. They knew that when it comes to missing children, those closest to the child are always scrutinized. Statistically, it's extremely rare for a child to be kidnapped by a stranger. Even rarer to be taken in the middle of the night from their own bedroom. So when the Van Dam case happened, it was, I think it was the first we'd ever had in San Diego where uh, such a, a huge case. And um, I, I think at first nobody could believe that um, child was kidnapped out of her bedroom and it was handled by patrol to start. That's retired detective Mo Parga with the San Diego Police Department. You'll hear from her throughout the show. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. That morning, the Van Dams told patrol officers everything about their Friday night, how Brenda had a girls' night out at Dad's bar, and how Damon had stayed behind and watched the kids, having a quiet, uneventful evening at home. The Van Dams left out the fact that they had smoked pot the night before and that they sometimes engaged in an open marriage. They were racked with worry about their daughter and what they did in the privacy of their own home in their minds had nothing to do with the fact that Danielle had seemed to vanish without a trace. Law enforcement and volunteer agencies across the county mobilized a door-to-door search for Danielle, but also by air and in the nearby canyon. An amber alert was issued. Breaking news reports shared the flyer with Danielle's face and details that a little girl had gone missing from her own bedroom. It wasn't long before even more search volunteers came forward to help. Both parents would be interviewed and polygraphed. And patrons from Dad's bar were also interviewed, including Brenda's friends who'd gone out with her the previous night. A forensic specialist and detective processed the Van Dam residence, searching for any clues which could point them in the direction of where Danielle was. But by Saturday night... There were still no answers. In fact, Detective Parga recalled going to bed, watching the local news. Danielle's disappearance was the top story. I remember seeing it on TV going to bed Saturday night, and I thought, oh, that poor family. You know, I saw her picture on the TV, and I thought, I wasn't on call uh, for robbery. Um, But I remember going to bed thinking, 
thinking about that poor kid. The city of San Diego was on high alert. The thing is, is that she was taken from her home with siblings and her dad and the dog in the house. It's just, it's mind boggling, really. And then you don't feel safe. Like if that can happen to them, you know, and I think that's why it really struck such a chord with everyone, because, you know, you can, you could totally relate to the horribleness of it. They lived in a nice house in a nice neighborhood, and she was just taken right out from underneath their noses. It was really... And they had a security system that they were actively checking throughout right. the, the day and night. I mean, it's right. like they were doing everything right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That's Jennifer Shen, retired crime laboratory director for the San Diego Police Department. You have a little child that goes missing, and so there was a lot of action by the police department as a whole and we didn't really get involved too much until it was decided that she was missing and there could be foul play at that time the crime laboratory got involved and they got involved by looking all the way all through the van dam house to see if they could find anything that would give them any indication of where she went or who took her so at the very beginning a lot of the forensics was concentrated on the van dam household itself Jennifer says that as the investigation progressed over those first 24 hours, it became clear that there were things going on inside the house that lent credence to the fact that Danielle could have been kidnapped even whilst her family was home. But one of the things that's really so sad about this is their dog, the Weinerheimer, who has very unique hair, which is very important in this case, um, had its voice box removed so it couldn't bark. And had it been able to bark, that might have made a difference. So they had the voice box removed because it probably barked a lot because it was a little puppy. And so that yeah. was to mitigate the barking. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of things about this case that are really horrifying. The Van Dam family in their seemingly safe middle class neighborhood had become vulnerable in a way they could have never imagined. So he didn't care. He wasn't concerned. He thought she, her husband was out of town. He thought there was a babysitter. Um, just a lot of weird stuff there. Do you think that he really believed that there was a babysitter? I do. I do yeah. think so. I don't think he would have gone in the house had he known that the dad was home. Patrol officers had done a very thorough job of searching the neighborhood and the surrounding areas, but they weren't any closer to finding out what had happened to Danielle or how to bring her home safe. By early Sunday morning, the scope of the investigation had shifted away from searching for a missing child into investigating a more likely scenario, a possible kidnapping. Seasoned robbery detective Mo Parga was called to the scene. Patrol had had it handled, and um, they actually did a fantastic job uh, securing the scene um, that first day, and I didn't get called till Sunday. I get a page early, early, early the next morning telling me to get to the scene. And uh, it was being turned over um, to robbery as a kidnapping. So that's how I got involved. When Detective Parga arrived at the Van Dam's residence, the San Diego Police Department had already established a command post on their street. Rolled up on scene, I was supposed to go out with my partner and just do witness checks at each house, do a, another search, another check, and, you know, going over what patrol had already done. Detective Parga is a big believer in listening to not only her gut, but also following her senses as a guiding investigative tool. You know, using all your senses and being a detective. 
So, you know, like you'd walk in and smell and look for footprints in carpet. Um, there's a lot going on in a crime scene that people don't realize that you have to use all your senses when you first walk in, when you first get that call. Detective Parga distinctly recalls the mindset of the neighborhood. It was definitely upper middle class um, professionals. The kids seemed all, all the kids, all the families seemed very kind, uh, professionals, um, very low key, very quiet neighborhood. I remember going, we had to go house to house, and I'd never seen so much white carpet. <laughs> <laughs> Again, going yeah. back to the observation of everything, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I was amazed at how much white carpet was in people's houses. I mean, I, was, I don't know how many times I took my shoes off to go in. <laughs> you know, just, uh, you should have tried to show respect and stuff. And, you know, we, we had to take canines to each one of those houses for our searches. And, um, Everybody opened their door, and um, everybody in the neighborhood wanted to help. Every single resident opened their doors to be searched, except one. Two doors down from the Van Dams, one house hadn't been searched. The homeowner was gone. He'd been out of town since Saturday morning. You've met him before, David Westerfield. Remember the David that had recently introduced himself to Brenda at Dad's bar? The David who bought Girl Scout cookies from Danielle and her mom and asked Brenda if she'd introduce him to her friend, Barbara. The David who patrons at the bar had said they'd seen him dirty dancing with Brenda Friday night, the evening that her daughter had gone missing. And that's when I walked up to uh, the last house we checked was uh, David Westerfield's. Detective Parga and her partner had been told that David Westerfield was still out of town. Even so, she wanted to check his place out from the outside for herself to get a read on its occupant. And as she walked up to the house, she noticed a small, seemingly insignificant detail. When I walked up to David Westerfield's house, the neighbors had told us he was gone. He wasn't home, but I wanted to go check anyway. And so when I walked up, I saw this beautiful putting green lawn, you know, just gorgeous lawn. And he had this hose dragged all the way out to the corner of by the street, and then doubled back. And I thought, if this guy's supposed to be gone for the weekend, and he's got his hose out here, it's going to make the lawn yellow. And I thought, there's no way, if he's so meticulous about his lawn, he's going to leave that hose out there, you know, for the weekend or whatever. That long garden hose really bothered Detective Parga. Remember, at the time, when they approached his home, they'd already been told that he'd taken his RV out of town for the weekend. And uh, so I told, <laughs> at the time, Lieutenant Collins, who I didn't know real well, I said, I know this sounds really bad, it sounds crazy, <laughs> but I think this is our guy. Um, I don't know anything about him, but the guy was in a hurry, leaving his hose out like that on that beautiful lawn. I said, look at that lawn. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and uh, they gave me a hard time about it. Um, but, you know, that was something that we were looking at, and, that, and it, it did spark some um, suspicion on David Westerfield right there. So he wasn't being looked at as someone who could be potentially be involved in it at that point. He was just one of the neighbors that you were going and checking, right? Yeah, until I um, brought that to a, the lieutenant's attention, and then they decided, yeah, we need to take a look at this. David Westerfield would return home Monday morning. 
He'd been gone since Saturday morning on a trip to the desert in his motorhome, which wasn't unusual. He had a nickname, Desert Dave, because he often spent weekends in the desert with his son or his friends. David had no criminal history to speak of. Basically, they were looking for her, so they were going through the neighborhood and looking at everybody's homes. And he was the only one that was not there. So when he showed up, everybody else had let everybody into their homes. You know, they wanted to see, because she was a little girl. I mean, did she somehow get into his motorhome or get into his house? Um, so he really, ha without looking suspicious, I would say, pretty much had to allow them access to his home. So they had no cause to get a search warrant, really, to look in his house. Um, but ev all the neighbors were letting the police look everywhere for this little girl. So they couldn't take anything at that time. They could just look. Yeah, they could just look, and they sure did see a lot of interesting things. Detective Parker says bright and early on Monday, when they got word that he was back in town and at home, they went knocking. Describe when you went inside. It sounds like... There was like he was flirting with you or something that struck me as something interesting that about his personality, that he was a show off and that you recalled him like sort of flirting with you, which is really bizarre, right? Yeah, it's creepy. You know, it's just creepy because, you know, my gut told me, you know, this guy did this, you know. And so it was, it just, he was, um, wanted to cook me lunch. Uh, while we were talking, and then um, he goes, well, you know, I could take you out to dinner, you know, and I, he, he just, he was so, um, he felt, it, I felt like he thought we were stupid, you know, like he looked down upon us, you know, my partner tried to talk to him a little bit, and and he would just go, you know, hey, you know, you guys look around or whatever, you know, it's, uh, you know, I got stuff to do, and he was very, um, I don't know, sure of himself, and but he was, you know, he was nervous. You could tell he was nervous. Yeah, wasn't he, was, he like sweating and it was cold out? Yeah, it was cold out because I had a jacket on and, and he was sweating. Um, uh, it was just, it was just weird the way he was kind of trying to interact with me, but trying to um, let us think that nothing happened at his house. Westerfield consented to let detectives look around his RV and his home which he shared on a part-time basis with his 19-year-old son. And he also let them look in his SUV. You know, he let us walk in and, and look around and, you know, went upstairs and uh, I looked at his bed. Um, he had the same sheets on his bed that I had on mine, kind of a uh, green and blue print. And uh, I thought, oh my God, that's the same sheets on the, I have on my bed. It was weird. And then I, I looked around his uh, bathroom and... I looked out his bathroom window, which looked into the Van Damme's backyard. I put my, and there was a face print in the screen where somebody had pushed a face in the screen. And, and it was like, well, that's how he was looking at Danielle, um, as he was pushing his face in the screen, and he could see her playing in the backyard. Did you literally and, put your face in the screen at that point to see yeah. if that's what it was? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's how you get to tell. Um, but I did, I put my face up there and it was, it was in a, there was an impression. And I thought, oh. But, you know, is that evidence? No, it's just a fact that I saw. Um, so it was just, it was pretty weird. I mean, from the saw. photos that I've seen, it looks like his house was meticulous. The bathroom mm -hmm. looked really clean. So I could see like, it's almost like 
those little details when everything is so perfect stand out within yeah. that perfection. Yeah, it was it was a very beautiful house. It was very clean. It was very uh, so it was you know to see the screen kind of pushed out like that was weird, and the bed wasn't made. So there's just those little things that kind of alerted me that there was an issue here. Uh, but you know, my gut feeling was that that he was the guy. <laughs> that was just my gut feeling was, um, you know, from the hose being left on that lawn like that, it just didn't make sense. And then him being all sweaty when I'm freezing. <laughs> Detectives would ask David Westerfield about his Friday night before his RV road trip to the desert when he'd partied at Dad's bar. Westerfield would say that he met his friend there and that he'd seen Brenda there too. But he'd left Dad's at around 11 or 11.30, basically drove home and went to bed. He also explained his other interactions with Brenda, how he'd introduced himself to her a week earlier, how Brenda, Danielle, and her little brother came by to sell him Girl Scout cookies. But when investigators went into his RV, they were pretty surprised at how spotless the interior was, how the master bed didn't have a comforter on it, how the inside of his garage smelled like bleach, and how his bed in his home didn't have a comforter on it, just like in the RV. But during the interview process at his house, he seemed overly helpful, but at the same time, not concerned at all about Danielle. Here, David Westerfield is speaking to reporters outside of his home. In the background, you can see law enforcement officers going in and out of his residence. And a reporter asks him, what's going on? Uh, they were just walking through, looking at They took the dogs through, is what they told me. So, And I saw them go in, so I'm guessing that's what they did. You're the homeowner here? Yeah. <laughs> Where were they coming to your house? Um, well, you'd have to ask them. I was gone all weekend, so... and. I offered to let them look through everything, check it, you know, basically. Do you know the mother of the missing Yeah, Yeah, I was actually out with her dancing. This isn't going to be on TV. Can I put my hat on at least? <laughs> the, uh, I was out dancing with, uh, we, we all of us met at a bar over in uh, PV, or not PV, over here in Poway. Mm -hmm. It's uh, at Dad's, uh -huh. so we were over there. This isn't going to be, you're going to edit this. What do you say, all of it? Well, I met Gary, and she and a couple of her friends showed up, So, and I saw her. Yeah, she recognizes me. She's got the green truck. I didn't see her husband, and she told, uh, I thought he was on a business trip, because, um, and that she had gotten a babysitter, but I don't know. That's just me. You know, I, you can't hear very well in was old it, age. Was it a party for someone who was leaving town? Or was, no, no, just no, to get together. Just to get together. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, didn't, um, I, I didn't plan to meet her there. Mm -hmm. I was going to meet Gary, and, and Gary is a friend of mine, and she showed up. That's all. Which name? David. What's your last name, David? Westerfield. How you spell it? W-E-S-T-E-R-F-I-E-L-D. You're going to edit that, right? After detectives take a look around his home, RV, and SUV, they would ask David Westerfield if he'd be willing to go down to the police station for a formal interview and to take a polygraph. He agrees. And this is really based upon the things that they saw in his house, his interview, um, you know, the fact that he just kept coming up in all the conversations. So it became a very significant person of interest quickly. Westerfield fails the polygraph. When asked the question, did you have anything to do with the disappearance of Danielle Van Damme? He had a very strong physiological response. His blood pressure went up quite a bit. This led polygrapher Paul Redden to conclude that David Westerfield had something to do with Danielle's disappearance. 
on February 5th, the police placed Westerfield under 24-hour surveillance. The in-depth interview by Paul Redden and the detectives revealed a convoluted accounting of his whereabouts over the weekend. And on Tuesday, Westerfield took the detectives to the desert in an attempt to recreate his movements from Saturday to Monday. Westerfield explains to detectives that he got up at around 6.30 in the morning and left his house at around 7.45 in his SUV. He drives to a place called Sky Ridge, where he stores his motorhome, leaves his SUV there, and then drives his RV back to his house to stock it with groceries and to fill the water tank. Remember, he had left that hose out. And set off on a trip that would take him south towards the beach, then north past his home, then east over 100 miles to the desert. After getting the motorhome stuck in several locations, he returned west towards Poway on, on Sunday evening. He drove past his home back to the beach, arriving late Sunday evening. He returned to Sky Ridge to pick up his vehicle at about 4 a.m. Monday morning and then returned home at 8.30. This trip took two and a half days and covered close to 500 miles. On the surface, Jennifer's description of his trip sounds like a lot. And as investigators dug deeper into his story, it just didn't make any sense. For example, early in the journey, Westerfield claimed that he realized that he'd forgotten his wallet and didn't have enough money to go to the desert. So he decided to stop at a place called Silver Strand State Park, which is famous for its beautiful beaches and family-friendly atmosphere. When he got there, he registered for a three-night stay and parked his motorhome. Apparently, he'd put too much money in the self-service payment envelope, so a park ranger would come by to his spot and tell him that he'd overpaid by $30. He'd put in $54 instead of $24, and the ranger felt that Westerfield was behaving oddly. In fact, once the ranger left, Westerfield immediately drove off. He would tell police that he decided not to stay there because it was too cold. But later, nearby campers would tell police that the weather was cool, but still really nice outside. And they would comment that it seemed really weird that the curtains on Westerfield's RV were all closed, including the front curtains that went across the windshield. And a witness at the park would later say that contrary to what Westerfield claimed, that he had misplaced his wallet, this person saw him pull bills out of a wallet. Westerfield decided to go back home to try to find his wallet. And by 3.30 that Saturday, he arrived back home where he saw news vans and police activity on the street and a neighbor told him about a missing girl. And Westerfield would say that he went inside his house to check his pool just to make sure that she hadn't gone there. But then he drove his RV back to where he thought he'd left his wallet, which was inside his SUV. And he says that's exactly where he found it, inside his car. Now that he had his wallet, Westerfield would say that he went and filled up the RV's tank with gas and then drove to a place called Glamis, which is a sand dune area roughly 160 miles away. He got to Glamis at around 10 or 10.30, pulled into a spot for the night, but witnesses would later say the spot that he chose was way off the road, close to the sand dunes, and consequently, he got stuck. The next morning, he began digging himself out. Eventually, someone came by and helped tow him out, but then he was off again. He said he left Glamis to check out a place called Superstition Mountain. He wanted to see if it would be a good place to take his son camping. Then he drove to a place called Borrego Springs, where he got stuck in the sand again, had to dig himself out, and didn't leave until about 6 p.m. 
Westerfield says that he then drove back to Silverstrand Park. Remember where he'd overpaid to stay there for three nights? But by the time he got there, it was too late for him to be let into the park. And he ended up staying in a parking lot next door for the night. By 4 a.m. the next morning, Westerfield was back on the road again, headed for home. But instead of dropping his RV back to where he stored it and picking up his SUV, he decided to just drive straight home. That was his story, which law enforcement wasn't buying. So on Tuesday, February 5th, uh, based upon that interview and the alibi that he had or didn't have, a search warrant was obtained for his home, his motorhome, and his SUV. This time they could go in and they could actually search everything. As investigators searched his home, they found receipts to a dry cleaners dated for that Monday. So they went to the dry cleaners and talked to the clerk who explained that Westerfield was a longtime customer, but she remembers his behavior the day that he returned to town as being extremely strange, that he'd arrived at the dry cleaners between 7 and 7.30 a.m., and she couldn't believe what he was wearing when he walked through the door. Despite it being extremely cold outside, he wore thin shorts and a t-shirt with no shoes and no socks. He plopped down a sports jacket and a comforter from his RV, saying that he wanted them washed. Throughout the exchange, he wouldn't look her in the eye. And that wasn't the last time she saw Westerfield that day. He would show up again later at 12.30 in the afternoon. He dropped off a sweater, pants, and a t-shirt. The dry cleaner's clerk remembers that Westerfield had on shorts and a t-shirt with bare feet on that cold early morning. He was driving the motorhome and requested one day service. This was unusual for him. In addition, she noted that he was brief and short in his conversation while he is normally sweet and gabby. He thought his clothing and his demeanor were odd. The jacket and the comforter were impounded by the police from the Twin Peaks dry cleaner. They would scour his home, collecting evidence. Pornography in large quantities was located on his home office computer. Some of this was child pornography and some of it was violent. The bedding from the master bedroom was collected. The laundry from inside the washer, inside the dryer, and on top of the dryer was collected. The lint from the dryer trap and from a trash can in the garage was collected. And a dry cleaning receipt and shopping list with bleach on it were collected. All of those things really became very important um, as far as the forensics go. And as all this is happening, obviously Danielle's family, two doors down, are watching this in horror. Damon, the father, is tortured over the fact that he hadn't checked on the kids after he woke up to find the sliding glass door open. You know, the parents, I know they're, I know that Damon was just upset that he didn't check the kids after that door, locking that door. And, um, and I, I pray for him because he lives with that, you know, he didn't check the kids after shutting that door. You never know. I mean, they lived in a quiet neighborhood. There was never any crime. There was nothing. And, you know, the door was open. He went, shut it, locked it. And it, it, that's what anybody would have done. And um, I think he just kicks himself for not checking the kids. Was there any um, indication that the sliding glass door had been broken into or was it, it was it not locked? I think it was just accidentally left open left unlocked. And mom, Brenda, was inconsolable. Brenda just, you know, she was doing her best to keep it all together. Um, I know we had to keep people with her because she was so distraught. Like she would have, like you were worried that she would take her own life distraught or? No, no, just so depressed and because she had to be there for the two boys. You know, they had to 
take care of the two boys. And so they did their best, you know, with the, with the boys and trying to keep a home life while they're being torn apart on TV. It just it broke my heart. As they were investigating David Westerfield, Danielle's parents were getting chewed up and spit out over their quote-unquote swinger lifestyle in the court of public opinion because they dabbled in an open marriage. How it must have repulsed Brenda to know that she had accepted a drink from David Westerfield, went with her daughter to sell Girl Scout cookies, and then the night Danielle was taken that she'd partied with him, introduced him to her girlfriend, and now patrons were coming forward who were there that Friday night at Dad's, saying that Brenda was seen dirty dancing with Westerfield on the dance floor. They said he, I, he was intoxicated and wanted to dance with Brenda and stuff, but um, I didn't uh, partake in any of those interviews. I mean, that's so, but I mean, getting kind of to the point about, you know, him flirting with you and him, like if he was pressing his face up against the window enough to make an impression, he was thinking about this for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. I, what his uh, prior engagements were with other people or children. Um, I know there was computer images that were pretty disturbing. Um, but yeah, it was, he was strange. Next time on The Murder Chronicles, part two of Premeditated Evil. David Westerfield is under the microscope, but so are Danielle's parents, who admitted to police that they had smoked marijuana with friends the night of the abduction and had on previous occasions engaged in group sex with other couples. Had their lifestyle choices invited a kidnapper into their home that wasn't David Westerfield? And the clock was ticking. Where was Danielle? In an investigation where forensic evidence would play a key role in solving the case, would it also be able to help find a lost little girl before it was too late? The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.